0: Hello and welcome to the How-To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Alan Moore is back. The man who almost single-handedly transformed the humble comic book into profound and affecting literature before turning his back on the industry, joined us last year with the late Brian Catling and Robin Ince, and he returned to How-To Academy just before Christmas to tell us about Illuminations his new collection of short stories. He also spoke to us about the occult, the birth of the universe, the nature of creativity, sheep excrement, and a whole lot of other things too. He was in conversation, once
1: again, with the inimitable Robin Ince. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome to the How To Academy. Uh, I'm Robin Ince. I'm currently in Dunedin in New Zealand, which was the birthplace of Rosalind Norton, who you probably know best as being a a neo-paganist amongst uh, many other things, including being an artist and a witch, which of course is of interest to today's guest, who is not in Dunedin. They are in Northampton and is Alan Moore. Good evening, Alan. Hello, Robin. How are you? I'm good. And the first thing I have to say about your book, Illuminations, is I was telling Brian Cox about it and I've sold it to him on the opening line of the improbably complex high energy state, which he believes should make you both a Booker Prize winner and also that you should be given a knighthood, though not obviously by the uh, monarchy, but some system of ancient knighthoods. Because that opening line on that first femtosecond of the universe is just magnificent.
2: Well, I mean, I put that story in especially to hook in the scientists, you know, because I thought that most of it is going to be sort of tenuous mystic ramblings. So I better put a little bit of sort of uh, inventive hard science in there. Well, as as hard as Boltzmann brains are hard science, you know, sort of um, mention a femtosecond or two, they'll love it, you know.
1: Well, I should say what the opening line is, is it was the best of times, it was the first of times, which every time I've mentioned that in any of my own book events, people have gone, where's Illuminations? In fact, it's cost me a lot of sales because people are buying your book instead, quite rightly.
2: That's great news, Robin. I mean, although I'm sorry about your sales, you know, because of uh, Bibliomaniac is a wonderful book as well. I'm halfway through it, unless you do something... Really terrible in the second half, you know, it's got my full endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, with that, uh, that first line of the improbably complex high energy state, I mean, it's sort of, um, once I'd thought of that, the story, I just thought, yeah, that is a quite a funny opening line for a story, especially one about the beginning of the universe, you know. So I only had to come up with, uh, a good closing line for the story and then just fill in the bit in the middle, you know, so, uh, That went fairly swimmingly.
1: Well, it's quite an exciting thing, I think, for the reader, because readers know that you don't really like brevity, that you like to take a very, very small moment and then make it into, you know, incredibly expansive exploration. So the idea of how many pages it would take for you to explore the first femtosecond, and therefore from that work out how long it would take you to write the entire history of the universe, creates, you know, something that even Borges, I don't think, could have come up with. Yeah, well, I mean, I was
2: it's lucky that uh, i had good proofreaders at bloomsbury because in the initial draft of the story which i think appeared in pete crowther's ps publishing it's um uh, they, they'd resurrected michael moorcock's wonderful new worlds in its latest incarnation and they'd asked if i wanted to write a story for it and since since the age of 14 my possibly greatest ambition in life is to be somebody who's had a story published in new worlds. So uh, yeah, you know, I, so I was trying to bring all of this, my limited understanding of science to bear upon the subject. And in the first draft of the story, it was talking about how if a femtosecond lasted the length of a normal second, then a normal second would last for 65 years which I thought was pretty awesome. And uh, then it was corrected. Uh, I was only helped by a a few factors. You know, it's apparently, uh, if a femtosecond was as long as a normal second, a normal second would last for 30 million years. So I'm glad that they caught that one because otherwise it would have completely destroyed my credibility.
1: Well, I I love that there's the, a the quote of yours once where you talked about trying to balance the mad howling diabolism with a dose of scientific reality. And I'm always fascinated by, because you have such an intense fascination with scientific ideas, the ideas of physics, you know, we've seen them in many of your different books. And of course, Jerusalem, you know, plays around with the idea of the block universe and, and ideas of, of Einstein. Do you begin to see that there is actually somewhere in there is an intention to say you can have all of this beautiful scientific reality, you can have these cold, hard equations, but also let us make sure there is space for the mysticism as well, that the two do not have to cancel each other out. No, I
2: mean, I'd call it an expanded rationalism. You know, I don't see that you need to abandon rationalism when thinking about mystical ideas. Yes, you probably have to abandon scientific rationalism when you're talking about things that are happening in the mind, you're probably in uncharted territory that I'm not sure that science is authorised to speak about, to talk about the inner world that all of us have. But, yeah, I think an expanded rationalism that sort of can allow that, uh yes, uh science is the best way, the best tool that humanity has come up with for, uh, actually figuring out the world that's around us but that is the world that's around us and not the world that's inside us where there are very different rules there are very different properties and um this is the world that either mysticism or art is best equipped to investigate you know but yeah i i think that we we need to have a warmer universe than is suggested by strict scientific rationalism. I think that, yes, the, uh, the universe probably does end in freezing darkness and entropy, that so, all of these things are perfectly true, and that there is no teleological direction as far as we know. For the universe, that seems to be true, which would imply that the universe was potentially meaningless. Now, there I I have to draw a line because it's not meaningless. I mean, we, as far as we know, are the highest consciousness that we have yet to discover in the universe, at least. We may be the highest consciousness in the universe for all we know. I would say that that certainly gives us the right to determine. We supply meaning. I mean, obviously, meaning is a human phenomenon. It's not something that is like gravity or electromagnetism. We, as the is as the conscious part of the universe, we should surely be able to decide what has meaning and what doesn't. So... Yeah, I think that sort of, uh, you need to have a bit of a stretched out consciousness. It needs to go beyond the purely rational. Doesn't mean that it has to spill over into lunatic irrationality, but that sort of rationality is a system. And any system has its boundaries. Uh, otherwise it wouldn't be a system. So sort of, uh, that, As humans, we need, I think, on a fairly regular basis to transcend those boundaries, whether it's sort of, you know, by mysticism, by poetry, or by reading a lot of books about giant killer crabs. We need that element in our lives. We all need some giant killer crabs in our lives.
1: And we should tell the uh, uh, viewers, obviously, "Crabs on the Rampage" is the best place to start. Not all the giant killer crabs books set in the uh, Welsh town of Barmouth are as good as the others. But I was, I was wondering also about is there something when I look at your work, and I, and I think it's tremendously educational. I've always found it when I, 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 because this desire for literalism, this desire that human beings seem to have, where they want a, a, a single objective truth. And yet, as you've said, you know, we have these minds, which means that if there's three of us in a room, we're all experiencing a different reality. We might have roughly the same reality, but what is going on is so different. And it seems that, you know, William Blake, I was thinking actually both of, of kind of your, with Glycon and this idea that this is your individual thing that is the individual god for you and and the way that william blake could have an experience and say this is a true experience but it's true for me and i don't want to tell you oh this thistle is an old man because i know this thistle i'm arguing with is an old man for me but it's not an old man for you and that that seems to be one of the things we're battling against
2: yeah that that is exactly right i mean and of course it was william blake who said that I must create my own system or be enslaved by another man's. It's sort of, this is the the difference between the way that I see mysticism and that I think that William Blake saw mysticism and how religion frames the mystical experience. I mean, the, the whole root of religion as a word, uh, it shares roots with ligature and ligament and it means bound together in one belief, which is quite similar to the bound bundle of sticks that was the early emblem of fascism. Um, It's this idea that in unity, and probably in uniformity, there is strength, whereas I would say in diversity there is strength. And so I think that, yeah, Blake was probably saying the same thing, that sort of uh, we all, obviously, we all have our own universes and we're at the centre of them, or we should be, and sort of uh, there is no need to impose your worldview upon other people. You know, I mean, that is something that would only hinder them. Whereas if you let them share your ideas and let them see a little bit of how you see the world, that would hopefully be giving them the tools to develop their own vision of the world, to be able to see their own old men in a thistle, you know, or whatever their equivalent is, you know. I, I, I suppose I'm very much subscribed to the, the 17th century idea of the nation of saints, although it hasn't really got a religious background in my construction of it. Just the idea that, wouldn't it be lovely if we were all saints and thus needed no leaders, where everyone could be a mechanic philosopher, that they could work as a tinker by day, and speak their guts, sort of after after dinner after nightfall, that sort of uh, that, you know, that the province of spirituality or thinking about these things would not be solely in the hands of a church. It's um, the religion of the individual, which is to say it's not a religion at all. That, As far as I know, I am the only worshipper of my second century snake puppet god, Glycon, which suits me fine. You know, it's sort of, I don't want to be bound together in one belief with a lot of people who worship a sock puppet. You know that would be mental. So sort of, yeah, yeah, the individuality of uh, we we should all have the right to have an intellect, to have emotions, and to have a whatever it is that has the intellect and the emotions. Soul would be contentious, but a self. That that would be that would be enough. Self with a capital S, the a, a self that has the intellect and
1: the imagination and the emotions and the physical body. I I, w- I was wondering if the um, in terms of how idea space has developed for you over the last forty years, because that idea of language as a spell, and I thought Jerusalem in particular was you know it, I remember the first time that I went back to Northampton having finished the book and suddenly you get this kind of you move around and every way that you move is now a palimpsest because the story on top of story on top of story there are all of these ghosts from the black lion onwards that are filling the air and so it did you know jerusalem to me of, of all your works i think it had this very very strong sensation of you end up the reader becomes part of that spell the moment that they start walking in well in fact any environment but northampton would be the most specific one and i wondered and in some of the stories in Illuminations as well, again, I got that sense that on each time that you return to prose, there is this, the intention of the potency of changing the walls in each reader's room, changing the sky for each reader. That that, that seems to, it, it feels stronger and stronger with your work. Do, do you get that sense? Yeah, well, I
2: suppose that I've got a bit more bloody minded about that as my work's gone on and that yes i mean like what i'm now seeing myself as trying to do especially in say things like jerusalem but yes yeah, to a lesser extent in probably a lot of my work is to it's the realization that the places where we live they to some degree they write us that we are dependent upon all of the influences of the place and time that we emerge in and grow up in at the same time we write the places where we live i mean i'd say that northampton certainly since it collapsed into a financial black hole in 2018 but sort of uh, certainly northampton and probably most other places at the present moment would seem to be particularly disenchanted, that there is no meaning in anything, there is no joy, there is no enchantment at all in our newspaper headlines in the streets that we walk. So one of the, the duties of literature seems to me, and of art in general, is a reenchantment to lend meaning to these forgotten spaces these forgotten people to make them kind of flare with life again um that that is art's job or at least part of it you know and if you can if you can attach narratives to places then you are kind of overwriting the reality because i mean when we think about victorian london We're not actually thinking about Victorian London, are we? We're thinking about Dickens. It's sort of because Dickens managed to overwrite the reality of his day in a way that gave it meaning but was recognizably accurate to the readers of the time where they thought, yeah, this is our world. And um, so, yeah, that's one of the the jobs of art and writing, I think, that sort of... uh, it has, it's got more power than people think. Uh, it's certainly got more power than I think a lot of writers think. That sort of, with the right words in the right place, you can, you can change the world. It's sort of, even if it's only one street corner at a time, that if you can imbue these places with life, then I think that the real world might follow suit. That is a completely mystical sort of idea that has got no necessary support from anything logical but i feel that when margaret thatcher uh greatly degraded the country from you know 1979 1980 on that she first had to degrade the idea of the country uh There were lots of ways in which we thought of ourselves before the Thatcher years, but at the end of them, no, it was something different. Unions meant something different by the end of the Thatcher years, and all sorts of things. It's sort of our, the landscape of our thinking had greatly deteriorated, and that was matched in the deterioration of the physical world. Because if the idea of something doesn't matter, then the thing itself doesn't really matter that much, does it? So sort of, I think that we need to reinvigorate that landscape of ideas that underlies this one. Um, and I feel that if if our understanding of the physical world about us was a richer one, We might demand a richer
0: world, you know. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
1: I think that thing as well, because well, I think it's a, it's way beyond mystical as well. Just that, that that to to get that magic of a place. I was just thinking this is probably a very literal version of it, but the change in somewhere like Leicester when they found that perhaps in that car park there was Richard III. And suddenly, it doesn't just change that bit of the car park. I mean, I really noticed it. It might have been psychosomatic, but I remember, you know, I've played there many times and wandered around the street. And there was this sense, had a horse ridden through there? Was a king standing over there? Who were the people crawling through? Suddenly, again, there were more ghosts there. And there were more things that, you know, as you're walking through that town, that city... It is a place of, it suddenly the stories are reignited. This is not just a hopeless place and over there is the Marks and Spencers and the little and all of those things. It is a place that is the, the magic of the story suddenly, I think is in the bricks again.
2: We need more ghosts. Uh, I don't know what all of these exorcists are thinking. You know, we need more ghosts. We need more reminders of the world that we're living in and how it's come to this and all of these astonishing things that have happened right where we're standing. I mean, like, you know, I mean, one of the things with Richard III turning up under a car park in Leicester was that who knows what's under all the other car parks. It not only does a lot for Leicester, it does a lot for car parks, doesn't it? You know, and uh, I'm all for that. I mean, like, I remember... Yeah, I, I, I had a soft spot for car parks since I I once went on a walk with some other occult-minded types, and we were looking at all of Alistair Crowley's addresses in London, uh, which has recently been the subject of an amazing book by, um, I think, Phil Baker, uh, who's done a thing called City of the Beast. Perhaps, he perhaps did it a while ago, but I've only just read it. But, uh, yeah, nearly every one, nearly every bus shelter that Alistair Crowley ever loitered in is still there. Whereas, if you were to do a similar walk looking for places associated with, say, Austin Osmond Spare, it's all sort of uh, Audi car parks. So, yeah, these forgotten little stretches of our urban wasteland who knows what might be buried under there and the imagination and literature those are some of the best tools for actually digging up some of these things we're I mean, not literally obviously you'd use an excavator for that but sort of no a, a poetic insight a, a you know a bit of magic a bit of art a bit of imagination
1: Yeah, reading the Orton diaries when I was a teenager and suddenly every public convenience, especially disused public conveniences around the Holloway Road or anywhere near the parks of Leicester, suddenly there's this extra bit of kind of, I wonder what went on there when Joe came back home. You know, even that is just, I find all of that fascinating. Um, We must, now of course, being you, you've done a collection of short stories in which one of the short stories is about 240 pages long which other people would call a novel. But no, we understand it's a a short story. And you described the writing of uh, what we can know about Thunderman as exploding like a lanced boil. And you, before we started this, you were saying this one kind of poured out of you, didn't it, at at quite a speed.
2: It it gushed out. Um, Yeah, and I know that it's, with Thunderman being the length it is, I mean... When I started it, I thought, oh, yeah, this is, this is going to be a really good short story, perhaps a long short story. And then I thought, novella, novella. It's going to be a novella-length short story. And then I thought, no, this is a novel. However, it was massively important that I believed it to be a short story when I started it. If I'd thought of it as a novel, then I'd have had all of that gravity and weight of expectation right i'm starting my next novel so this is a serious thing i'm going to think it all out i'm going to plan the ending um i'm going to work it all towards a certain effect it wouldn't have had any of the life or certainly the humor of Thunderman. It, uh which well because i thought it was a short story that i was going to divide into mini chapters and then the mini chapters just kept on coming. But I still think of it as a short story, albeit it's like a short story that is... now it's a novel that is hanging out with short stories and hoping to be taken for one, even though it's massively bigger than the rest of the, the stories that it's hanging out with. It's a bit like an obvious adult dressing... As a schoolboy in short trousers, in order to get half fare on the buses or something like that, you know. Yes, it was, um, I obviously had quite a lot to get out of my system there, but I think I did it with a certain degree of humour and, um, intelligence. And it's, it's done much to stop me from muttering in the bath in the morning. You know, just having that out of my system, it's, uh, and uh, yes, it, it allows me to stop thinking about that stuff, which is, uh, which is great, which is, you know, um, it's been a long time coming.
1: Well, it seems a very important thing when you're saying that, which is, I often think, you know, there's a, I think it's Ian Forster who said, how do I know what I think until I've written it? And that actual act of whether, you know, anyone watching this, it doesn't matter whether you're writing for publication or writing for yourself or just writing. I, I think that idea of placing ideas on paper, on removing them from your head, there is something which is incredible. I mean, I found during lockdown in the early days, there was like a couple of days where I thought, oh, God, I've got a headache. I've got a really bad headache. And then I literally found the moment I started creating things it it was like the words were bouncing in my head. And then once I went, oh, oh no, if as long as I can keep making things, it's okay. And I think for everyone watching here, you know, that that idea of exploring an idea, you can't, however many times it goes around in your head, it's not the same as actually placing it on paper. Well, I
2: I think that actually, I mean, a lot of people, if in as much as they think about writers at all, they probably think that writers are people that have ideas and then write them down, which is not the way that it happens, or at least not as far as I'm concerned. It's the actual act of writing that has the ideas. I mean, like William Burroughs, he used to talk about something called the word vine, where you put a word down, and that will kind of suggest or employ the words that should follow it, and so on. And, yeah, it's not quite like that, but that is closer to the way that i write a story that sort of you you come up with a killer opening sentence like it was the best of times it was the first of times and sort of and then you have to say something after that so all right so let's talk about this being the first femtosecond of the universe and let's talk a bit about that and let's talk about what's happening and and then you kind of the rest of the story just came to me as I was writing, as did most of the ones in the collection. I'd got a vague idea of sort of how they'd go, but, um, it's, it's during the actual writing, like, uh, the, uh, the Jesus in Bedford story, the, um, location, 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 which had all come out of thinking about the Panacean society who had bought this, end terrace house semi-detached nice little property for the messiah to live in in bedford when he returns after the apocalypse and i thought that that was you know quite an interesting thing but i thought yeah but what if it turned out to be true then that would be really funny wouldn't it and possibly quite revealing so you only have to have just that much of an idea and then you think, right, the, so what, it would be the solicitors who were running the Panacean Society or its various estates. And so it would be somebody from the solicitors and she'd be going to meet the, the new tenant sort of, um, on the day after the apocalypse and like everybody else has gone up in the rapture and, What would he be like? What would he look like? Or what would their interaction be? What sort of person would he... What would be going on in the sky? These... And then when you get to the end of your rumination, when it's reached a point where it seems satisfying, then you just stop. This is one of the great joys of short stories, that sort of, uh, even if they're enormous long things, like Thunderman, it's that sense of, Being able to play, it's not such a huge investment that it becomes a serious and weighty thing. If you're dealing with a short story, even if it turns out to be a serious and weighty thing like Thunderman, then there's that that sense of play that a short story allows you that uh, a novel perhaps sometimes doesn't. It's sort of, uh, yeah,
1: you know... I was, uh, I should mention, I love, by the way, I love the fact the Garden of Eden's in Bedford. I've visited that. I'm sure you've been to that Garden of Eden, haven't you? Well, we are actually, the closest that I've
2: been to it is that uh, Joe found me some pictures on Google Street View, which there was nobody else around or they'd been airbrushed out. And sort of, it was a lovely sunny day in the images and... um, it looked quite like the world had perhaps just ended. And when I saw that there were these allotments just across the street, uh, I thought, yeah, I can do something. And, and I'd heard about the panaceans saying that, yeah, the Garden of Eden, that was in the backyard of this place in Bedford that we've bought for the Messiah. It was and actually starting to think, how would the theology of that work? Why would the Garden of Eden be in Bedford? <laughs> what would that have been like? What was the Garden of Eden anyway? Yeah, you know, um and as well as reading Revelation in the impossibly old I picked up these huge Bibles uh I think they're family Bibles from seventeen seventy six. In fact I used to enjoy pointing out to Melinda that yeah, those books over there they're as old as your country. Sort of um but uh yeah, you know, so I was looking at Revelation and reading that again, and that's a bundle of laughs, you know, sort of with uh, all of the, the seven-eyed slaughtered lamb and uh, all the rest of the stuff that I'd forgotten, you know. I I just tend to remember the Beast and the Scarlet Woman, uh, like most people, I guess, you know. But, now, nah, you know, once I've got those things in place, the stories... You don't have those ideas before you start writing. You know, they kind of fall into place as you're writing. As you kind of have to immerse yourself in a kind of trance where you're actually in the writing, you're in the story, and you're thinking, what would they say to that? Uh, or what would people tend to notice about this environment? Things like that. You're. you're what does it smell like? So... And then at the end of it, you find out what your ideas were. Because we write things, it's coming from a semi-conscious part of our brains. And we're not always aware of the import of what we're writing. That um, we can sometimes write a thing lightly and then only realise later that sort of, actually, that, that was more serious than I thought it was, or that was making... A cleverer point than i thought it was but no we don't have all of these ideas to start with and then just write them down it's a it's a it's a different thing to that the a lot of it seems to be as if you've got a brain in your wrists or something that is responsible for putting these words down it's not your regular consciousness and writing itself is Quite a mystical act. You know, where does this stuff come from? The the, the names in Thunderman, where I was having to come up with a lot of unlikely names for potential American comic book professionals. And they just seemed to, to flow out of me. Brandon Chuff, you know, uh, <laughs> Worsley Porlock, Crosby Bunsen, you know, uh, Jerry Binkle. You know, they didn't really take any thinking about, but I was really pleased with them. It's, uh, yeah, I think a lot of the best stuff about writing is the stuff that you don't plan, the stuff that just happens when you're sitting there at the keyboard.
1: I I was thinking, you know, you, you read a lot and you think a lot, and it is, it's that experience as far as I can see, which is part of it, is you just keep pouring things into your head and then you kind of shake it up. And it fizzes out. So it's like, it's it's so all of those possibilities, you know, that's one of the things, which is, you know, to try and have as many experiences as possible. And that experience doesn't necessarily mean having to go out of the house. That experience might be as you journey through, you know, we were talking before about a book book you were saying, you know, Sex and the Great War. You journey through sexuality and what was going on in the Great War. And then you journey through some H.P. Lovecraft and a world that's been created there. And then some Edgar Allan Poe. And then, you know, a a, a book about a mental institution in 1780. 83 and all of those things it's interesting isn't it that they're, they're all sticky even though you don't realize it they're all somewhere they're all sticking around it's it's also it's like a, a wilderness approach
2: to creative intelligence it's like you allow your mind to run wild and to become overgrown with all sorts of unlikely things Just these, what you were saying, these bits of information picked up possibly over a lifetime that have remained in there, they will interbreed, you know. It's sort of, um, and it's the kind of, it's the cross-pollination of ideas. When one idea bumps into another one that I think is the important thing, uh, I mean, not always necessarily your own ideas. I remember that when me and Melinda were starting Lost Girls, we'd not got any idea what we were going to be doing. We knew that we wanted to do something, we'd been commissioned to do something for a book of erotic stories. And we thought, yeah, that sounds a bit dodgy and there's so many ways to do that wrong. And we were sort of thinking, what would we like to do? And we were coming up with useless ideas that obviously weren't going anywhere. And I'd got a vague idea that, hmm, you could perhaps... Put a Freudian interpretation on Peter Pan, that sort of Peter Pan's got a lot of flying in it, and with Freud he said that flying in dreams is a sort of is a scene of sexual freedom, and yeah, I thought maybe a kind of a sexualized interpretation of Peter, but that didn't go anywhere. Um, and then Melinda happened to say that her favourite stories that she had written always involved three women characters. Just for some reason she found that that was a a nice little mix of characters, you know, having three women characters in the main roles. And so I just thought, huh, well, if Wendy from Peter Pan was one of those three women characters, who would the other two be? And... I doubt that there's a man, woman or child on the planet who couldn't have answered that as quickly as I did, you know, and just thought, oh, and if the other ones are Alice from Alice Through the Looking Glass, Alice in Wonderland and Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, oh, and what if it's all happening around about, you know, you're looking at the chronology of those characters, there'd be three different ages, but they might have met around, what, 1913, 1914? Oh, that would give you the chance to talk about the Great War and all of these things. I mean, in fact, I've probably got that sexuality in the Great War book that we were referring to a moment ago during the research for Lost Girls. It's sort of... Uh, but, yeah, you know, ideas collide and then they don't even have to start out as a very good idea. They can be half an idea. And if they collide with the right half of another idea... Uh, that's when you get this kind of cross-pollination. And I think that that leads to a healthy, if impenetrable, mental environment, you know?
0: Hey there.
1: I was wondering just the, the final question pretty much before we we take audience questions, which is the change it how the process, how different it is for you when you're not in collaboration because obviously with your work within, in, in comic books, you are the visualization and the way that you work together on the words and the visualization in those that you have collaborated with. Uh, means that as you said with Melinda for instance this is going to change things and this is going to change the picture that comes out of your imagination and the way that she the picture that comes from her imagination and the two feed together whereas when you're sat alone as a writer how different is that experience of creativity? In some degrees it
2: is massively different the main thing is that you're all on your own on the creative journey if you're just writing a novel Yes I mean like i can I'll read bits out to Melinda whether she wants me to or not and um so that'll mean that I can get a little bit of feedback, but it's not the same as when you're collaborating with somebody um, when you can actually you can talk together excitedly about it you can sort of uh, you know and something that is almost like what William Burroughs spoke about as the third man that if you've got two creators present there will be a third man present that is somehow both of them and neither of them it is the the interaction between them and sort of uh i mean like uh just recently i lost one of my longest term collaborators in uh kevin o'neill kev died a couple of weeks ago and, uh, that has made me think back upon our collaboration and often it was Kevin providing the, the germs of these ideas. Um, I think it was him who told me about the ruckus between George Orwell and Frank Richards who wrote the Billy Bunter books when Richards had apparently unwisely had chosen to defend himself against George Orwell's attack. And uh, it wasn't really an even-handed battle, you know. But uh, from that, the whole of the stuff in the Black Dossier, connecting up Orwell's 1984 with Greyfriars School, there was so much that I wouldn't have... wouldn't have brought to the table myself and i mean that was particularly true with the cinema purgatorio thing that me and kevin did black and white short little eight page stories about it wasn't about horror films it was about the horror of films and so we would got bits about todd browning or howard Hughes. we've got an episode on the black dahlia along with lots of other things as well but with that, I mean, Kevin's knowledge of films was just so tremendous that I'd go to him and say, what do you think we should do next? And he'd say, I don't know, maybe something about Thelma Todd uh, because he'd read something about Thelma Todd who was... Uh, there was a, she, she died in mysterious circumstances and it was surely a murder mystery. So I, I'd never read that. I'd thought at one point, I'd remembered the uh, the fact that Groucho Marx had written a letter to Warner Brothers when they had said, you absolutely must not do a film called A Night in Casablanca. We own the word Casablanca forever. <laughs> and he'd written a letter to them saying, well, uh, we don't think that you have the right to call yourselves brothers because we were brothers long before you were brothers. <laughs> And i remembered that. And Kevin said, yeah, actually, he said, according to Billy Wilder, uh, Jack Warner was a failed comedian who was always coming out with non-sequiturs and lame gags and would have given anything to be a funny person. But he really, really wasn't. And so we got that quote from Billy Wilder and that suddenly became this entire strip. So, yeah. I mean, like, yes, if you're working on your own, yes, it is a bit lonelier, but it's also perhaps not as intellectually stimulating as having somebody else there who can bring you their experience,
1: their ideas, if it's a proper collaboration,
2: which I hope that all of mine
1: have been. Well, that's why I, I remember when, you, in the early days of Cinema Purgatorio when walking down through the streets of Northampton and the excitement you had as you were talking about different things. I think it was the sword and sandal one or the Roman Empire one where people slowly realised that everything is just a set and the whole thing starts to fall apart. And it was just like I could see the delight in the conversations that you had had with Kevin was now, you know, coming back out as we were just walking down that street, the excitement of how this was going to turn out was a lovely thing to see.
2: That's always the thrill, you know. It's sort of, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, and uh, speaking of Kevin, we probably ought to mention um, the last person who we were um, sharing the How To Academy with, which was Brian Catlin, who, uh, I mean, he wasn't, ever a collaborator of mine although there is the possibility of perhaps a posthumous collaboration on Brian's last book but I get other creative people I assume it's not just me I assume it's all of us that we are taking huge inspiration from everything around us or at least we are if we're smart you know so there are some very very clever people and some wonderful people around who Everyone is a source of potential kind of energy and treasure. And uh, that was certainly true of Brian. And it was certainly true of Kevin. You know, it's been a bit of a couple of months in some ways.
1: Yeah, Brian was, uh, and I think both of them, uh, r- remarkable creative people. And Brian, you couldn't put him into any box. It's like the more that I read about him, the more I went, Oh, and then he went off in this direction to create. And then he decided to create, you know, and then the Vore comes out and all of those things are just, it's again a, a constant reminder not to be, you know, it's that, what's that line you used to say about, uh, don't give the audience what they want. If the audience knew what they, uh, uh needed, then they wouldn't yes, be the audience. If they knew what they wanted,
2: they wouldn't be the audience. It's your job to give the audience what they need. Yeah. Which the audience may not agree with you on, you know, but it's still your job to
1: provide them with that, you know. Um, We've got some audience. Now, now this I was going to ask you anyway, because it is mentioned in the uh, books you have written in Illuminations, which is uh, the book that you wrote with Steve Moore, the uh, Bumper Book of Magic, the Moon and Serpent Bumper Book of Magic. Is Stephen Wonders, is this imminent? It's, I wouldn't say imminent, but we are nearly,
2: I had a beautiful proof copy through from John Coulthart, who is handling all of the design on the book. There aren't a great many pages left to fill. It's going to be sometime next year, I'm fairly certain, and it is going to look like the most beautiful children's annual that never existed. Uh, that you've ever seen it's um we've got wonder I mean, kevin has got a beautiful run of pages the adventures of alexander that is done in a british comic style boy kevin and we've got the wonderful ben wickie who is a really versatile and talented young artist who is doing the lives of the great enchanters section got some work in there by steve parkhouse who i work with on the Bo jeffries saga and it's all wrapped up in this beautiful john caulfark design it's going to be worth waiting for i hope but we're nearly there there's just a few pages that john's got to fill and a couple of questions that we
1: need to resolve but um, i would say next year for sure Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you for your question, Stephen. Uh, This person wonders, is The Soft Machine the ultimate Burroughs book for you or are there other books that had more impact on you from Burroughs? The Soft Machine was just the one that I read first,
2: which ended my childhood. Um, I read The Soft Machine when I was 14. So it probably had the most shocking impact on me. But I wouldn't say that it was the most important Burroughs book. I I don't even know how to quantify that. I mean, The Naked Loach would have to be up there. And um, the Western Lands trilogy, the sort of uh, City of Dead Roads, all of them. I mean, it's I enjoy Burroughs as a thinker. And the fact that he's dead now really doesn't make any difference i mean i'm i'm still getting kevin rings excellent beat scene magazine every three months or so and uh there's generally new books about Burroughs or articles focusing upon one aspect of his life or his work and there's generally something to be learnt there but um now the soft machine always will always have an immense personal impact because I was 14, I was on holiday with my parents and I was reading this book about naked, hanging, ejaculating boys in caves, which was a bit of an eye-opener, you know, because six months before I'd been reading
1: Sword and Sorcery. Uh, This is another person we haven't got the name for, but uh, wonders, do you still believe that our culture is turning to steam? And is that a bad thing?
2: Well, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I would say that uh, it's a thing. I don't know whether that was the best analogy, but I would certainly say that things are a lot less solid than they were in previous decades. That all of our, every part of our society and culture, including our individual psychologists, seems to be becoming more fragmented, behaving more like the atoms in a liquid than in a solid, and increasingly perhaps behaving more like the atoms in a vapour than in a liquid. There is certainly something that is happening, some sort of process, I suspect that it's probably to do with a fairly seismic upcoming shift, which has to happen. Probably this might not be unconnected to the horrific death throes of capitalism, the environment, all of these issues, which overlap so greatly. I think we are reaching a turning point probably as significant as the change between hunter-gathering and agriculture, and the change between agriculture and industry. And This is the change between industry and whatever this new stuff is that's coming up that we don't yet have a proper name for. We'll probably have a name in 50 years or something when we're looking back on it, hopefully. Hopefully. But I think that it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing that is going to happen. That uh, we are going to be going through this state of change, whether we like it or not, because... This is not a change that is being directed by political leaders or political parties or political philosophies. This is something that is purely being directed by technology and history. I mean, I was reading a great book by Steve Paxton called How Capitalism Ends, and he was pointing out that what brought about the capitalist revolution, it wasn't figures like Robespierre. Or Oliver Cromwell, or well, that they played their part. But he said a much greater cause of that revolution was sheep shit and turnips. That these were the leading forms of this was the cutting edge of technology back in the fifteen hundreds. That sort of uh, we suddenly realised that one of the fields didn't have to lie fallow, that you could plant turnips there and that that would reinvigorate the soil and so over and of course the sheep would fertilize the soil and farm yields suddenly quadrupled and that everything happened starting from that you know so yeah these changes have to happen we don't know how they're going to turn out but i would say put your trust in history and in the way that the current is going
1: uh, final question sorry i was just going the the uh um this is from tamas this is kind of linked in some ways again the change which is uh, tamas wonders said uh, thoughts on the impending ai revolution which is coming whether we want it or not on one hand we have new tools available to greatly expand our ability to imagine and create on the other hand we greatly risk removing the human element from creativity so what are your thoughts on that Al?
2: my thoughts about ai are to some degree A bit restrained in that I think that there's every indication that we may never create a self-aware, a true artificial intelligence, an artificial awareness. What we will have is extraordinarily powerful processing machines that could do a great deal to benefit society. Uh, I believe that they have something called niche AIs that are controlling the transport system in, I think it's Beijing or Hong Kong, and I can never remember which. But uh these are AIs that know everything about that transport system. So if there's a part that breaks down, you will immediately get a work gang that is the nearest that will be assigned to cover it. It's all working perfectly and smoothly. I think that you could use niche AIs to make most of the administrative decisions that we currently employ politicians for. I think that if everybody else is having their livelihoods threatened by automation, why not politicians? The downside of AIs is that sooner or later, somebody is going to trust their missile defenses to an AI, and then everybody else will kind of have to. And then we would be in very dangerous waters uh, where a computer error could lead to the extinction of the species. So there's no way to uninvent uh, artificial intelligence. It is just one of the mutations of the world that we have to live with. But, uh, and there are some very wonderful things about it. There are also some very troubling things about it. But amongst them, I personally don't think that we're ever going to, this is not going to, it's not going to end up like Skynet. The idea of an artificial intelligence rising up and taking over the world is, I think, 1950s, 1960s science fiction, uh, where it's a great idea. But I really don't think that that is going to be happening anytime soon. I don't think that a pocket calculator is going to be having a Cartesian epiphany uh, right about now.
1: Well, we need, as you said before, we need to stop pushing the wheelbarrows. And if you don't know what that means, look it up and you'll find out which excellent Jack B. Quick story that's from. Um, Illuminations is out now. Uh, it is, it's 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 as uh, fantastic as always. And uh, I would like to thank Luke from the How To Academy. And also in Northampton, of course, Joe, who you describe uh, beautifully as not merely a collaborator, but also your indentured slave. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan.
2: Love to everybody. Love to the Southern Hemisphere. You know? And so I'll talk to you soon.
0: This episode of the show starred Alan Moore and was presented by Robin Ince. It was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett and the editor is John Doughty. The show is made by me and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. You can find Alan's previous conversation with Brian Catling in our archive as well as writers including Ian McEwan, Isabella Yende, William Gibson, Neil Stevenson and many more. Till next time, thanks for listening.